Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to the Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen. And you'll never die. They know you die physically, but he's talking about something greater. He's given us, what does he call it? Eternal life, everlasting life. It's the opposite of separation from him. It is connectedness to him and a relationship with him that begins the moment you give your life to him and then it continues forever and ever and ever and ever to infinity and beyond. Happy Friday. In today's broadcast, we have part two of Pastor Sam's message, The Resurrection and the Life. We're in John chapter 11, and we will start today in verse 24. Now, Jesus is about to raise Lazarus from the dead, and one group of people will be rejoicing and praising God, and another group, who should be doing the same thing, are angry and wanting to kill Jesus for it. Let's listen in. As she declares her faith and her hope in the written word, Jesus says to her, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God, who is to come into the world. Now, it sounds a little confusing because first he says, if you believe in me, you'll, if, when you die or and if you die, because everybody does, you'll live. And if you live and believe in me, you'll never die. So it's like, okay, which is it? I'm going to die or I'm never going to die. He's talking in one of those about physical death. He's talking in the other about spiritual death. And that's the second one. He's saying, listen, if you live and believe in me, you're never going to be separated from me because death means separation. How do we know? James tells us, he gives us a biblical definition of death. He does it in the context of wanting to tell us that faith without works is dead, but he says, as the body without the spirit is dead, and that's a biblical definition of death. The body separated from the spirit. The wages of sin is death. So separation is what he's talking about, and we see it. We're separated from God because of our sin. So he bridges that gap because only he can. He goes to the cross to die for our sin, buried and risen again. The picture is simply this, that if we're not in Christ Jesus, we're dead in trespasses and sin. All of sin and come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. The gift of God, everlasting life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So he's saying, listen, believe in me and you'll never die. They know you die physically, but he's talking about something greater. He's given us, what does he call it? Eternal life, everlasting life. It's the opposite of separation from him. It is connectedness to him and a relationship with him that begins the moment you give your life to him and then it continues forever and ever and ever and ever to infinity and beyond. Well, anyway, she said, and we read, yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ the son of God who's to come into the world. Jesus, her living hope, not just hope in what the Bible teaches, not just though we have that and we want that and need that, but we have a living hope in the person of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That means every trial we endure, every storm we survive increases our faith in his faithfulness to keep, protect, 
and then use all those things for our good and for the good of those around us. When she said these things, verse 28, she went her way and secretly called Mary, her sister, saying, the teacher has come and is calling for you. As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came to him. And Jesus had not yet come into the town, but was in the place where Martha met him. The Jews who were with her in the house and comforting her when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, followed her saying, she's going to the tomb to weep there. Important, those words, comforting her. Scripture says we can comfort one another and the greatest comfort we can give, we will have received in our time of suffering and trial. In fact, that's what Paul writes when he says, I want you to comfort one another with the comfort you've received from our Lord. And so that's happening for them and to them. Well, Mary came where Jesus was, verse 32, and saw him. She fell down at his feet. This will always be her posture before the Lord. She is one who sits at his feet, listens to him, loves on him wants to be close to him. She fell at his feet saying to him, listen, it's going to sound familiar. Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. It's word for word what her sister had said, but they didn't have to rehearse it to get it right. They both believed the same thing and both of them had faith and hope in him. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. The words for weeping here are grieving and literally wailing. It was cultural, but it's still common today. There are those who weep audibly. You can hear them. You're just, you grieve for them because you can hear and see and feel their suffering. But Jesus' response to all that, though he feels their pain, is a little bit different. It says he groaned in the spirit. He groaned in the spirit. It was in between. I may have skipped it. He sees them weeping and her weeping. That word groan means to be stirred within. There's a storm brewing within, anger and indignation within. He's afflicted and he's grieved but it's all happening within him. Why? Because he's looking at the results of what sin does to people he loves. And it's so important to say it. It's not Lazarus' sin or Martha's sin or Mary's sin that caused this suffering. It's just the fact that sin's in the world. No one escapes suffering. No one escapes sorrow. No one escapes loss because we live in a sinful world. And there are still a few people, less and less though, saying, no, people are basically good. And I'm like, where? You know, show me where that's true. No, the reality, that's sweet. Somebody said, Calvary Chapel. Um, <laughs> that's true. Listen, you can be good in him and you might've been nice before him, but we're still imperfect sinners. We have sinned. We are sinning, not this moment, hopefully, and, and will sin. But the point is, if we're different, he's made the difference. And if we've just worked our program or turned over a new leaf or tried harder, eventually that will fail us and we'll fail in it. Why? Because we need life in order to live, not just a transformation of how we were and what we do. We need the life that he imparts to us. Well, 
he's troubled within and, and, and grieved within. So he says, where you've laid him, they said, come see. And the shortest verse in scripture, it's important to know, it's here in verse 35, Jesus wept. If you're just starting to try to memorize scripture, start with this first. Because you want to do well, see? You want to get off to a good start. And there are a few others like it. Do you know that you can memorize scripture easier by not trying to do it than laboring over it? How? Well, you just read it. Take a book like 1 John. It's short. It's powerful. It's very organized. John's thoughts, so clear. And he has a lot of repeated phrases. But you take something, not the gospel, but 1 John. And just start reading it. Read chapter one every day for a week. And then at the end of the week, just start in verse one and see how much of it has stuck. It turns out a lot sticks. Just a couple weeks ago, uh, well, it's been, I, I can't even tell the time just, you know, it goes so slow during the day and then it's all of a sudden Friday again. I'm like, what? How did that happen? But, but my uh, younger grandson was hanging out with everybody at Christmas, at first here and then at, at our house. And, and uh, at the service when they were there, there was a little bit of a lull. And, and so they're like, anybody have anything to share? He goes, I got something to share. And they go, well, what is it? He goes, it's scripture. He's 10 years old. So they said, well, why don't you share it? And he starts to, to share from memory, Luke, I believe it's chapter one. It could have been chapter two. Either way, he did 20 verses. He's 10 years old. I don't think he worked hard to memorize it. I just think he read it and it stuck. Have you ever noticed jingles, commercials, things that you just like, no, I don't, I don't want that in my head. You can't get it out. This is something you want in your head and heart. And so if, if you doubt what I'm saying, pray, Lord, give me the ability to memorize your word. Why? Your word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. His word will transform how we think, how we respond, what we do. Now, Jesus wept, not as those around him. There were tears flowing forth. That's what this word to weep literally means. And, and it's clear, the distinction in the original Greek. So, so here's the picture. They're grieving outwardly. He's grieving inwardly. But all of a sudden, the tears just start pouring forth. And those around him could see it. They realized, man, he feels their suffering. He feels our pain. The Jews said, see how he loved him. And some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Their faith is limited, but they believe what they've heard or seen. He's opened the eyes of the blind. He's given hearing to the deaf. The lame are leaping and running and walking. And, and well, the lepers are cleansed. And now he's raising the dead. They're just asking the question, and it's a really good question. Could not the man who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man from dying? So they're not as far as Mary and Martha, because they're like, if you were here, he wouldn't die. But they're like, if he were here, couldn't he have? Could he possibly have kept him from dying? It's limited faith, but get this, it's rightly placed. It's in him. This man, if there's any hope, he's it. Then Jesus, again, groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Now, it's a command, not a suggestion. Nevertheless, Martha, who's affirmed her faith in the resurrection and her faith in his love and care for them, she balks. She answers saying, well, Martha, the sister of him who was dead, 
said to him, Lord, by this time there's a stench, for he has been dead four days. Now she doesn't say no way, but she's saying no way. Don't do it. It's going to reek. He's going to reek. It's so important that we see this because Jesus gives a clear command and, and like, well, she's actually doing better than Peter will because he'll say many times, no way, Lord, or that's not going to happen to you, Lord. I want to suggest if the Lord says something, we shouldn't question it and we certainly shouldn't contradict it. We should never say, no way, Lord. But anyway, all of this brings us to the glory of God. And uh, I, I want to say that all she's been through, all they've been through, couldn't really prepare her for what was about to happen. And the Lord reminded me again this morning, he can do exceedingly abundantly above all I ask or think. I know that there's nothing too hard for him, but there are so many times where I'm not fully trusting as I should. And I know if that's true for me, it's true for you as well. Sometimes for us, prayer's our last option when it should be our first. Going to him, Lord, what do you want me to do? What are you intending to do? You allowed this. What are you wanting to accomplish through it? So he says, take away the stone. And she says, hey, no way. It's going to just reek. And Jesus said to her, did I not say to you, verse 40, if you would believe, you would see the glory of God. And the answer to that question, it doesn't have to be said, right? He's not asking to get an answer. It's obvious. I said, believe, and you'll see the glory of God. They took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me, and I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who were standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Jesus' compassion never conflicted with his mission. He always was on target and, and the sorrow they felt and the suffering they endured, it was going to magnify the joy they were about to experience. And elsewhere, it actually says the suffering and the sorrow we've gone through cannot be compared with the glory that lies ahead. It seems like a mountain when it's happening. It's not even a pebble in eternity. We're not going to look back and wonder, how did he let me go through that? Why did he let me go through that? We're going to be able to look back and say, look at what he did there and look at what he accomplished there. And, and while there might have been another way, this is the way he chose to do all these things. Well, in any case, when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. It's another command. Three words that every born-again believer in Jesus will hear someday. He'll call us by name, either at death, because absent from the body, present with the Lord, this side of the cross. And then, if not by death, if by rapture, as the dead in Christ rise first and we rise into the air, accompanying them, meeting them in the air, meeting him in the air. And it says, thus will forever be with him. So, we started with, well, last week, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. Turns out even if you're dead, you can hear his voice. And that's what happens to Lazarus. He is a sheep of Jesus. He belongs to his fold and his flock. And he commands him to come forth. And he who had died 
came out bound hand and foot with grave cloths, and his face was wrapped with a cloth, and Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. This is a picture for us. Those of us who are alive in Christ Jesus today, but still suffering or still struggling. Do you know that Romans 6 teaches that we are no longer slaves of sin, no longer in bondage to sin, not just forgiven and cleansed of our sin, but we're no longer slaves to sin. And I know a lot of Christians and have known over the years, many people who've said, you know, I tried to get free of this. I struggled with it before I was saved. I've struggled with it since I've been saved. But the solution isn't to try to overcome the flesh and the energies of your flesh. It's to believe the word of God. And Romans 6 says we're no longer slaves of sin. And he says, live as if you believe that. Romans 7 says we're no longer slaves to the law. And there are people who are suffering in their, their, their habits and their old lifestyle. And there are others who are caught up in the law because they think, well, now I have all these rules and regulations that keep me safe. No, you have the good shepherd to do that. And there's a lot of freedom in him, just not freedom to sin. And then freedom from condemnation. Free from, from sin, Romans 6. Free from the law, Romans 7. Free from condemnation, Romans 8. And, and I've noticed that lots of us, we're more sensitive than we ever were to, to our own sin. The more you grow in him, the more you become like him, the more repulsive your own sin. Other people's sin was always repulsive. It just looked worse on them. But as you grow in him, you realize, hey, that thought is offensive to the Lord and self-destructive to me. And, and, and it doesn't even have to come out in words. It's an attitude of heart. And so all of that to say this, our mission isn't just to bring people to Christ, but to free them for Christ. How do we do that? We speak the truth in love. There are people here today, still in the grave clothes, the trappings of your old lives. You still reek of the decay and the depravity that he saved you from. And you can be free today. That's why I'm telling you, free from not just the penalty of sin, but from the power of sin, Romans 6. It's so, so important. Read it, memorize it, live as if it were true. Well, many of the Jews, verse 45, had come to Mary and they'd seen the things Jesus did and they believed in him. And then that oh so tragic word, but some of them went away to the Pharisees. They told them the things that Jesus did. And the chief priests and Pharisees gathered a council and said, what shall we do? For this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. And I read that and I think, how great would this world be if everyone believed in him? What would Chico be like if everyone in Chico believed in Jesus? We can't even imagine it. But that day is coming, that world is coming, and we'll live in it and be a part of it. They're saying, if we don't deal with him, everyone's going to believe in him. And then they get to what really is concerning them. The Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. They're so worried about themselves, they've stopped being concerned for the people they were supposed to be shepherding and guiding and leading and protecting. Here's the real tragedy. It's going to happen anyway. 70 AD, Titus will come into the city. They'll burn it. They'll destroy it. 
the temple. They'll massacre the people. They'll deport those they don't massacre. They're worried about the Romans coming. Hey, they're coming. Taking away their place and their nation. All that's going to happen. Not because people believed in Jesus, but because they didn't all believe in him. Verse 49, one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to him, you know nothing at all. I like that. He's saying, you guys, you know nothing. You're so stupid. Um, <laughs> no, he probably didn't say it like that. Nor do you consider it's expedient, essential, absolutely necessary that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. Listen, he's saying something that is so profound, he doesn't even get it. He, he's, he's saying it because it says he didn't say it on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for that nation only, but also he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. It's powerful because he is in a position where he speaks for God. And God's actually given him a revelation and he's sharing it with everyone there. It's expedient. It has to happen that one die for the nation, but not for just that nation. It's the crazy part is he'll be a part of making sure Jesus goes to the cross. And, and, and so listen, 1 John 2, 2 tells us that Jesus didn't just die for our sins. He is the propitiation for our sins, God's satisfaction for sin, making reconciliation and forgiveness and life possible. He says, but for, not for our sins only, but for those of the whole world. Last time he talked about how his sheep hear his voice and he says, I have others. Other sheep, not of this fold, not of this flock. And, and they're going to be coming too. And, and there'll be one shepherd and one flock. We are a part of that other fold, that other group, his sheep. And, and so grateful to be a part. Well, from that day on, verse 53, they plotted to put him to death. Seems inconceivable. After all he did, they said, man, he's got to go. He's healing people. He's, he's loving people. He's forgiving people. Look at all that. We've got to get rid of him. And why? Well, we learned in our very first chapters, men love darkness more than light. That's describing them here perfectly. Therefore, Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there into the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim. There he remained with his disciples and the Passover of the Jews was near. And many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. So they sought Jesus and spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple. What do you think? That he will not come to the feast? But both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it, that they might seize him. Isaiah tells us of Jesus, he was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief, bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace upon him. By his stripes, we are healed. Wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. In today's message, Pastor Sam made mention several times that Jesus has given us eternal life and eternal connectedness to him. Now this is an amazing gift. And sometimes we can think that there has to be something we need to do to earn this. It's a common misconception about salvation. 
Well, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 17, we are told that there is something we need to do. It says, the world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. We need to do the will of God. And what exactly is the will of God as it pertains to our salvation? Well, listen to two other verses from this same epistle. Chapter 5, verse 11 says, And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. And then chapter 5, verse 13 says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. So, the will of God is that you believe, and that you believe in his Son. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico, and you can visit our website, ccchico.com, or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam. You can also listen to The Calvary Road as a daily podcast by visiting thecalvaryroad.com. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, may you find grace and peace as your journey takes you down the Calvary Road. And your grace.